Hey, good morning, gasaholics. You are there, aren't you? I'm looking for you. I'm looking. Trying to find you right now. Oh, but I'm going to continue on going. This is Hot Rod Bob, and you've got gas, the morning edition, and we're back. It's Wacken Wednesday, right in the middle of the week. So we're here, and I'm not on assignment today. Well, I am on assignment. It's house duty chores. But gas is back. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about is cars of the 50s. And what? why would the 50s be so important? It's important to me because I'm from the 50s. So I thought I'd talk about cars from the 50s. Well, let's talk about the car industry in the U.S. The U.S. car industry. Not the imports, just the U.S. You know, in, 19, in the 1950s, Chevrolet outsold everyone else. That's right. In the 50s, not any specific year, but through the 1950s, 13 million Chevrolets were produced. Ford was number two with 12 million. Plymouth snuck in there in number three. And where's Plymouth today? Gone. Chrysler, in their infinite wisdom, killed the Plymouth model line. And Plymouth was number three with five million vehicles in the 50s. Buick was right behind them with number 4 million, 4.8 million. Oldsmobile at 3.7. And General Motors, they did the same thing. They killed Oldsmobile. 3.7 million vehicles just ahead of Pontiac by a mere 40,000 vehicles. And where's Oldsmobile and Pontiac now? Gone. Generous Motors killed them both. Next up was Mercury at 2.5 million vehicles. 2.5 million vehicles. 1950. Hmm. Where are they? Ford killed them, too. Studebaker was right behind Dodge. Studebaker had 1.3 million. Dodge had 2.4 million. Packard, which eventually merged with Studebaker in the mid-1950s and is gone as well as Studebaker is, had 1.3 million vehicles. But they were only in production from 1950 through 1958 for the 50s. And in 1958, Studebaker killed the, Pontiac, the Packard brand altogether. They tried, but very poorly, continued the Packard line on, basically making it customized Studebakers with Pontiac badges, or Packard badges. Like, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. So Packard went away. Nash, only available from 1950 to 57 in the 50s, was at 974,000, right behind Cadillac's 1.2 and Chrysler's 1.2 million vehicles. So Packard, who died, was still ahead of Chrysler and Cadillac. DeSoto, another brand that's gone, as well as Nash, nine was only, well, let's see, 2,000 vehicles behind Nash. Rambler, and Rambler, with five 641,000 vehicles, was ahead of Hudson, which is also gone, at 525. Now, Hudson, Rambler, and Nash made up American Motors. And in 1958, the highest-selling vehicle was the Rambler, believe it or not. 1958, the Rambler sales 600,000 vehicles alone just in that year. Hi, Cassie Nunez. Thank you very much. And Valerie Vasquez. Thank you uh, for uh, the birthday greetings. I do appreciate it. Lincoln came in at 317000 Kaiser, 
and Henry J., both gone. 224000 for Kaiser, 130 for Henry J. I had a Henry J. I kind of like that car. Edsel came about 1958 and 59 with 100,000 vehicles. The Chrysler Imperial, another vehicle gone, 55 and 59 model years, 93,000. Willys, well, that was the Jeep. Well, actually, there were cars for Willys, but they only lasted 52 to 55, and 91,000 were made. The Continental, which was a separate line from Lincoln, had 15,000 vehicles. Frazier, yeah, 50 and 51 only, 13,000. Total estimated number of vehicles produced during the 50s by U.S. manufacturers, 57 million vehicles. Almost 58 million were produced during the 50s by the American manufacturers. Total production for the United States at the end of the decade was 1.7 billion, or million vehicles. 1.7 million total production. Now, production years, what were the highest? Well... 1960, that's not 1950s, but 1960, out of that decade from 51 to 60, 7 million vehicles in 1960 cars. Now, this is just cars. Trucks, there were 1.2 million. In total, 8.3 million vehicles produced in 1960. Hi, Nicole, thank you very much. And Jason, boy, you guys are really on top of this. Thank you. All right, 1951, there were 5 million vehicles produced, one or cars, 1.5 million trucks. In 52, sales dropped for everyone. A million vehicles less in 1952. 4.6 million cars, 1.3 million trucks. A drop of 200,000 in trucks and a million even with cars. 53 picked up big time with 6.5 million cars. Trucks stayed stagnant at 1.3 million. In 54, 5.8 million, another drop in production. And trucks went down again to 1.1 million. In 55, a banner year. And people may blame that on the super 55 Chevys that came out. But 8.3 million vehicles produced in 19, or cars, alone in 1955. Trucks came up as well with 1.3 million, but dropped the following year to 1.2, and sales of cars dropped also by 2 million to 6.2 million. 57 picked up a little bit, 6.4 million. Chevrolet had the hottest car on the market, but Ford outsold them in 1957. Although today, the more popular the 57 Chevrolet. Dick Schwartz, good morning to you, and thank you very much for the birthday wishes. In 1958, a severe year for the auto manufacturers. The lowest production since 1952 at 4.5 million vehicles. Trucks slipped under a million to 943,000. 59 picked up, big time, 5.9 million and they closed out 1960, for some reason they list this as the 50s, 7 million cars. What were some of the new things that happened in the 50s? Automatic transmissions became mainstream. Chrysler and General Motors had introduced somewhat automatic transmissions. Chrysler had the fluid coupling, which was a 
manual transmission with a torque converter and a clutch pedal. But a 1940 Oldsmobile had the hydromatic, a true automatic transmission. And they used that in tanks. And Chrysler, in the tanks they built, used their fluid drive. GM marketed the transmission as battle-tested. Put it in the hands of the consumer, and they can screw it up. Don't worry about it. Good morning, Brian and Bill. Brett Wagner. Happy 82nd. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brett. <laughs> Power windows started becoming popular, and they were first introduced by Packard in 1940. But by the 50s, they became a luxury item that a lot of people wanted to go to. Oscar, good morning to you as well. Now, suspension design started changing, too. Most companies had already moved over to independent suspension, except the only holdout, Ford, through 1948, still had the I-beam. But by 1949, everyone had switched over to pretty much independent front suspensions, and now the 50s brought about coil springs in the rear as well, giving a softer, smoother, succulent, or succulent, or whatever, ride. But... Yeah, the solid front axles were gone, except for trucks, which carried those on through the 60s. And in the heavier versions, the heavy-duty versions, the solid front axle is still the way to go. Unibody started coming on strong, although it was first introduced by Lancia and Citroën. Hmm, interesting. Back in the 20s and the 30s, they had a unibody construction vehicle. Americans didn't pick up on that till the Chrysler Airflows. And then in 1936, the Lincoln Zephyr. The 1941 Nash also had it, but it didn't become popular until the 50s. And Rambler, Americans, and Nash, and so forth, were the first ones to switch over to all unibody design on their vehicles. The overhead valve V8 started becoming popular. Ford popularized the common man V8 in 1932. During the years of the Depression, sales were actually extremely poor for Ford in 1932. But if you talk to a hot rodder, that was a banner year because that's when the flathead V8 was introduced. They told Ford he couldn't make an inexpensive one-piece block for a V8 engine. He said, yes, I can, and he did it. They did it, they put it together, and the Flathead V8 stayed in production with modifications and upgrades and improvements through 1953. In 1954, Ford came out with the overhead valve engine for their line of vehicles, the Y-blocks, as they were called, because the skirted bottom came down pretty far. Stout underside of those motors, but they were heavy. Hi, Tony Thacker, how you doing? And thank you very much. Now, in 19, well, the first ones, 1949, credited with putting out a regular production overhead valve V8, goes to Studebaker in 1947. They began developing it, and it was 229 cubic inches. Cadillac and Oldsmobile were not available to the public until 49, so Studebaker gets the nod for the first V8 in 1947 with an overhead valve set up on it. Sutterbaker engines had features not found in the Caddy design, and uh, it was a pretty stout little motor. I've had a couple, and they're nice. All right, now they're saying in this thing, by 1951, it was up to 232 cubic inches worth of overhead valve V8, producing 120 horsepower. Hmm. I've got that on the smallest four-cylinder I've ever owned. Chrysler created the Hemi in 1951. 
and that has gone down in history in various sizes and as one of the most popular and demanding engines around. If you find a top fuel car without a Hemi engine, it's extremely rare. That is the main, it's the only engine they run in current top fuel, funny car, and dragsters. Chevrolet Small Block came out in 1955. Chevrolet a little bit behind the curve, not having a V8 engine until 1955. And that hurt sales of the Corvette when it first came out, only having a six-cylinder engine. AMC also developed its own overhead valve V8 called the Gen 1 in 1956. Originally, it was only 250 cubic inches, but within a few years, it went to 287 and then 327 cubic inches. Now, a lot of people think the 60s and the 70s were the years of seatbelt starting. Nah, seatbelt started coming out in 1949. Nash was the first U.S. manufacturer to offer seatbelts. No one bit. It was a very, very poor option. No one wanted it back then. Thanks, movie Mike. I appreciate it. But Saab GT750 was the first car company first vehicle to have standard seat belts. All others made them as an option. Even Ford had them as an option. And it was shown at the 1958 New York Auto Show. The first modern three-point seat belts, well, that 1955. There's a U.S. patent. The American Roger Griswold and Hugh de Havilland developed them. And it was a development into the modern form by a Swedish inventor, Nils Bolin, and he got a patent for Volvo. So two different people getting three-point seatbelt patents. Apparently they were completely different. Uh, the Volvo style is more along the lines of what we're used to today. I've not seen the uh, Griswold de Havilland version, but hey, it was introduced by Volvo as a safety device and standard equipment in 1959. Three-point belts, 1959. And I can remember a Swedish ad for the seat belts. It was a young lady who wasn't wearing a blouse at the time and um, had a bruise right between, yep, right there. And the caption was that it saved her life, the three-point belt saved her life. It was in Sweden only. <clears throat> Radial tires came about in 1948, and believe it or not, if you didn't know this, Michelin was tied into Citron. Michelin's auto-making subsidiary was Citron, and radial tires became standard on Citron models. The U.S. was a little slow in picking up on this. I remember putting uh, radial tires on my uh, Triumph sports cars in the 70s. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, air conditioning started to become popular in the 1950s. Although it was developed in the 40s, it actually uh, really didn't become popular until the early 1950s, and it was still kind of strange technology. I can remember uh, a Cadillac actually having the air conditioning unit in the trunk. The compressor was up front on the engine, but all the other items were in the trunk, and it blew through vents that came up over the parcel shelf behind the passenger seat in the back. So uh, it was interesting. Now, BMW, who was a luxury manufacturer and performance car manufacturer, started using rack and pinion steering in the 1930s. The Europeans picked up on that and adopted that technology as well. It was lightweight and very efficient, 
But Americans, well, they didn't pick it up till the 70s. The first American car to get rack and pinion steering? The Pinto. Power steering started becoming popular too, and although it dates back to the early 19 or the late 1800s, not many people had it, and I, frankly, my 40s and 50s cars don't have it. And I like it that way. I like the workout I get. But power steering became the way to go beginning in 1951. It was marketed on the Chrysler Imperial, and it was a huge upgrade cost-wise, $200. Now, brakes, that was always something we thought we needed. I mean, you know, you want to hit the brake and come to a stop sometimes. Morning, Lisa. Thank you very much. Good morning, Joe Wava. How are you today? Well, drum brakes were the way to go. Ford didn't use hydraulic brakes until 1939 or 40, I believe. But most everyone had hydraulic brakes before then. What started to come about was disc brakes. And the first American car to have four-wheel disc brakes was the 1962 Studebaker Avante. Until then, American cars used drum brakes at all four wheels. In 1939, here it is, Ford switched from the cable system to hydraulics. And power assist brakes started coming about, although they were invented in 1903. They didn't become popular and in general use until the 50s. Self-adjusting brakes were offered in 1957 on the Mercury and the 58 Etzel. Kim Gainey saying her mom saw me, Peggy, Randy, and his wife, oh, last night, yes, on the Game Show Network. Oh, yeah, we were the hot rods, and that has been in reruns now for about three years. <laughs> yep, we were there. Randy Cardoon, my partner and uh, co-host with Gas and talking about cars, the evening editions. Uh, his wife and my wife, Peg, we were all on a game show called America Says a few years ago. We were out in the lead and then lost it by just one point, but it was fun. All right, cars, concept cars, the 50s were full of them. The 50s were an exciting time. Now, I don't know what your preference in vehicle years are. Mine is, well, if it's got four wheels, I might be interested in it regardless of the year. And right now, well, our household has one 1950s vintage car. We had two. We're down to one. But we've got two 1940s vintage cars. And there's another one in process. But we'll talk about that another time. I'm Hot Rod Bob. Flashback to the 50s. Thank you, everybody. Lisa Abrams, Kim, and all you for the birthday wishes. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for being part of GAS. GAS, the Great American Auto Scene. Since 1990, your source for information, trivia, and a little humor thrown in from time to time. Hey, subscribe to my YouTube channel, please. GAS, the Great American Auto Scene. Bob Beck. Talking about cars and two tired guys productions. All on Facebook. All on YouTube. It's free. We don't charge. We just like to entertain. Thank you much. Have a great day. I'm Hot Rod Bob. You've got gas. Brought to you by Service Tech Equipment. Service Tech, the people that provide the equipment you need for the shop you've got, whether it's your home shop or commercial shop. Service Tech's got it all. Talk to Craig Heidenthal. They're in Simi Valley, California. You can find them on Facebook. Tell them 
Bob back at gas sent you. I'm Hot Rod Bob, and you've got gas on this Wicked Wednesday. Hope you have a great day. Take care now.